Hey, Cooper, put that um, last song back up there, just the chorus. John chapter 3. The last, the chorus of this song is pretty simple, right? Hallelujah. You know, praise be to our Lord. Um, And then it says, very simply, all I have is Christ. And then it says, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. And I wonder this morning if we really would mean those words that we just sang. Someone once said that Christians don't tell lies, they go to church and sing them. (laughs) It's pretty tough, right? But some of us this morning, I imagine, were maybe just kind of lip singing these words, but could we truly say this morning, all I have is Christ? You know, we have a lot. We're blessed. We have homes and vehicles and families and friends and church. But if all that was taken away, would we still have Christ? And I hope you can say this morning, yes, I have Christ. And then is he your life? Is he your everything? We're going to see in John chapter 3 that, that Christ needs to be our, our all. And we've discussed this, I think, on Wednesday night. We discussed how um, we're kind of spoiled in America. We're spoiled by things we have. And so we, we sometimes take our attention off of Christ because there's so many toys that we can put our attention on. And I want to call us, before we even read this text, just to understand and, and, and think about the fact that Christ should be our everything. And I hope you will consider that as we dive into John chapter 3 and find verse 22. If you found it, say word. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was so much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, by the way, some of John the Baptist's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Would you look at the screen and read this verse with me? Just this verse, you ready? He must increase but I must decrease. Verse 31, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath said to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father 
loves the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believes on the Son hath eternal, everlasting life. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. May God bless the reading of his word. And I'm going to give you this morning four things that stood out to me as I studied this passage, four different parts of it that I think will help us understand it um, the best way we can this morning. The first thing is notice the jealous disciples. Notice these jealous disciples. So the context here is this. Jesus, as we read a couple of weeks ago, he is teaching Nicodemus in the city. And the context is he and the disciples leave the city and they go out to the country. And once they get out to the country, we can assume here that people are coming to Jesus and they're hearing the truth. They're hearing his preaching. And as he preaches, people are believing and thus they're being baptized. Now here's the interesting question. Was Jesus baptizing them or were his disciples baptizing them? Look over at John chapter 4 verse 2. It tells us this, that though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. And so people were coming, hearing the truth, believing, and were being baptized there in, out in the country, if you will. And at the very same time, close by, John the Baptist is also baptizing. And so basically, John the Baptist has these disciples, these followers, and they begin to notice that more people are going to be baptized by Jesus than are going to John the Baptist. And if you read it, it talks about, let me find what verse it is. Is it verse 22, 23? Um, no, down in verse 25, I'm sorry. Uh, there rose this question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And we, may not, we don't know exactly maybe what that was, but I just kind of, I kind of imagine there's these unbelievers who come up to these disciples of John the Baptist and say, Man, what's going on, man? Your guy here used to have a lot of followers, used to have a lot of people coming to him. Now they're all going over here to this new guy. And I can almost feel these unbelievers like picking fun at them. Why, why, why are they going over here? And so these disciples, from best I can tell, show some, some jealousy here and some confusion. And they're like, well, let's go ask our master. Let's go ask John the Baptist about it. And so they go to him and, and they, they question the, in, in verse 26. They, say, or they tell him, hey, rabbi, master, teacher, that guy that you were with earlier that you pointed to, you, you bear witness to, all men are going to him, which didn't literally mean all men, but people are going to him instead of coming to, to you. And in this, I see, and I believe I see here, a frustration among these people. And look at verse 26 again. It says, to whom thou bearest witness. So, we know from reading in John chapter 1 that John the Baptist had already told them, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had already pointed his disciples to them, hadn't he? Even some of Jesus' first disciples were originally John's disciples. He said, that's who you need to follow over there. Go follow him. And so, and so John the Baptist is saying he is the one. And yet, they seem surprised when people are following the one who he already said, that's the one. They seem surprised about it. Why do you think these disciples felt that way? Do we as humans have a tendency to be insecure or jealous of other things? 
do we as humans have a tendency to think our ways are always the right ways? I have seen situations in churches. I've been in this situation in a church, but I've also seen it with a friend of mine recently who was an associate pastor, a younger associate pastor at a church. And his older senior pastor would not let him preach. And the reason was the senior pastor knew that everybody in the church loved the younger associate pastor. And he knew if he let him preach, people would make comments like, he preached better than you. And, and there are a lot, and I've been in that same situation. I was once at a church for four years as an associate and preached like twice. And I don't, I'm not saying I preached better than that guy, but everybody else said that. <laughs> but I didn't say it. I didn't say it. For example, last Sunday, one of y'all walked out the back door after Brother Jason Goodwin had preached and said, I bet you're glad you don't live close to here. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? He's going to take my job. <laughs> Pastors can be very insecure about that kind of stuff. Can I tell you this? Everybody I ask to come fill this pulpit, I hope they preach better than me. <laughs> because I want you to be fed the best preaching you can possibly get. I want that. Here, but here's the, here's, the, here's the point of it. It should, it's not a competition, is it? It's not a competition. As long as someone is standing, preaching the word, preaching the truth, preaching the gospel, we should be happy that person is preaching, right? These disciples were not that way. Let me, let me illustrate it this way, too. And there are a lot of complexities with this illustration, but if you heard there was a church nearby that in the past six months had baptized 100 people, what would be your first thought? I would think, that's pretty awesome. But I can be honest with you and tell you my second thought would be, is that real? Because we just don't hear about that kind of stuff very often. I would think, is that real? Is that real? Is God really doing a work there? Or is that just some kind of man-made thing which we know happens often in our culture? But if you knew for a fact that there was a church that was preaching the gospel, preaching the truth, in, in this area, making disciples, doing things the right way, loving people, serving people, and have baptized 100 people in six months, how should you feel about that? Excited for them. I would want to go talk to the leadership and say, man, what has God done in your, in your church, in your lives? But to be honest, a lot of churches are jealous. We said this, I said this to you last year, but comparison is the thief of joy. Can I tell you, as a younger minister, I would get really jealous at times of other churches. If they had better, a bigger building, a better gymnasium, more people, better musicians, I would be jealous of that. But can I tell you now, at the ripe old age of 41, I don't really care. I really don't. As long as we have people who love the Word of God, who preach the Word of God, who share the Word of God, who love each other, that's what I care about. And that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. We should not be jealous of others. Can we pray for God to do a, a greater work in us? Yes, we should. should we, can we work for it? Yes. But we shouldn't be jealous when we see success in others. These disciples here as I read about this, just gave me a glimpse into ministry and to us sometimes of how we should, uh, we should be excited when people go to Christ, right? Let's look at the second part. 
his response, John the Baptist's response in verses 27 through 30 give us the second thing, which is, notice he's the humble prophet, the humble man. Notice John the Baptist doesn't say, you know what, you're right. Y'all go over there and count how many Jesus has, and we'll count how many I have and see who has more. He didn't do that. He didn't get mad about that. He doesn't get angry or sad or discouraged. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, he said, a person, a man cannot receive anything except to be given him from heaven. And when I first read that, I thought he was talking about Jesus and what Jesus had been given from God. But the more I read into it, I think he's talking about himself. And I think he's saying, God has given me the ministry he's given me, and I am content with the ministry God has given me. You and I can only receive the blessings and the successes that God will give us, and we must learn to be content with that. We can be tempted to say, I wish we had this, I wish we had that. And as I said a moment ago, we can pray about it, we can work toward it, but we must understand ultimately anything good that comes our way comes from God. And we must learn to be content with what he gives us. Not restless, but content. Look at verse 28. He continues and says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. Not only did JTB, as I call him, John the Baptist, not only was he content, but he knew his purpose. If anyone in the Bible knew their purpose, it was John the Baptist. I mean, he clearly would say, I'm not worthy, right, to untie his sandal. I'm not worthy to stoop down. I Behold the lamb. He constantly pointed people toward Christ. That was his job. That was his purpose. He basically said in verse 28, I'm, I'm just the opening act, right? Jesus is the main event. I'm the appetizer. Jesus is the main course. He is who you need to look to. And then look at verse 29. He illustrates this purpose with this marriage thing, um, which some people might find, you know, why, why did he give this illustration? Why did he give this little small parable? But again, I think verse 29 helps us understand it. He says, he that has the bride is the bridegroom. The bride here, by the way, is the church. It's the people of God. The bridegroom is Christ. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. You remember when you got married, you had a best man or a maid of honor or a matron of honor? Did y'all have that? Yeah. Did your best man guys do anything? Just kind of hung out? In these first century weddings, there was these people called the friends of the groom. And they would oftentimes be, be these guys who would kind of help just communicate between the bride and the groom. And I even read that some believe that the, it would be his job as the friend of the groom to make sure the bride gets to the groom on the wedding day, which I think is kind of a neat picture. And John the Baptist is saying here, I'm not the, bri- I'm not the groom. I'm the friend of the groom. It's my job, my purpose, my goal to bring the bride, to bring people to the groom. And once I've done that, we can read into this here, and John the Baptist is saying, once I've done that, I have done my purpose. Whatever happens there is it's, it's not, not in my hands anymore. John the Baptist gives us such a beautiful illustration in verse 29 of his purpose. So the point is, it doesn't matter that Christ is getting more popularity. That's what I want. That's the point. I want people to go and hear him and see him. 
And he says in verse 29, that brings me much joy. That brings me much joy. Church, do we want the accolades and glory for ourselves, or do we want all glory to go to God? There are things we can do, things I can do and you can do as a church, that could probably bring us some recognition. But do we want recognition for us, or do we want it for Christ? For Christ. Ministers get in trouble with this. Ministers get in trouble because they'll say, man, I just need people to like me. And so they'll focus more on fun. They might even put it in their church slogan. Sorry. Or they will weaken the message of the church. They'll weaken the message and they won't preach on sin and repentance and things like that because they want their kingdom to grow. Whose kingdom are we trying to grow? How about this? Some, um, I was at a church one time. I'm calling people out today. And, and uh, I've told you the story before, some of you. I went to the church on a Wednesday night, core group, core group of believers, the ones who are going to make the decisions to help the church grow forward. And I said, hey, we have the opportunity to feed a local football team, and it's going to be awesome. And there's going to be like, you know, it'll probably cost us $500, something like that. We'll feed, you know, 100 kids. I'll preach to them. Many of them don't go to church. It'll be a rare time for some of them to hear the gospel. It'll be exciting. And one man in the back raised his hand. And I said, yes, sir. He said, how will that help us any? And I knew at that moment, by the way, I was going to be leaving that church. And I did not long after. But how is that going to help us any? <laughs> and I said, it's not. We're preaching the gospel of Christ that they might be saved. <laughs> is the goal to help us and to grow our kingdom or is the goal to grow his kingdom? And so we send out money to missionaries, our church does, but we don't do it with the thought of, how that's really helping us. We look pretty good sending out missionary money. No, we want them to go and build God's kingdom. That's what we want. And that leads us to this amazing verse that I, ho I would hope you'd memorize even right now, verse 30. This clear, concise, content, purposeful Humble statement, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. John is saying here that Jesus' authority, his influence, his purpose is at this time increasing, and mine is decreasing. And I'm good with that, because that's why I'm here. Let me read to you what J.C. Ryle said on this because he says it much better than I can. But on verse 30, J.C. Ryle said, John was only the servant, Christ was the master. He was only the forerunner and ambassador, Christ was the king. He was only the morning star, Christ was the sun. The idea implied appears to be that of, listen to this, the idea implied appears to be that of stars gradually fading away as the sun rises after the break of day. The stars do not really perish or become less, but they pale and become invisible before the superior brightness of the great center of light. And the sun does not really become larger or really increase in brightness. It just becomes more fully visible and occupies a position in which it more completely fills our vision. Does that make sense? As the sun rises, the stars fade. They're still there, but they fade. 
Raul goes on to say, so it is with John the Baptist and with Christ. And he says, every faithful minister ought to be like John, to be content to be less thought of by his believing hearers to their growth in the knowledge and faith of Christ. Then he says this, as churches decay and fall away, they think less of Christ and more of their ministers. I've seen churches like that, even smaller churches, where all, it becomes all about the pastor and they exalt him and promote him and he's the thing. Shouldn't be that way. They exalt Christ, not any pastor. And he says, as churches revive and receive spiritual life, they think less of ministers. That don't mean don't think about them at all, but think less of them and think more of Christ. To a decaying church, the sun is going down and the stars are beginning to appear. To a reviving church, the stars are waning and the sun appearing. I pray in our church that the sun is rising. That Christ in our hearts, in our midst, in our families, Christ is being exalted. And that we're taking that back seat. Here comes a preacher illustration I read in a book. After a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the people jumped up, clapping, screaming. It's a huge ovation. And of course, Beethoven, you know, famous musician, famous pianist. He played, and the conductor there, his name was Arturo Toscanini. And he was sitting there listening to this big ovation that Beethoven and himself and the, and the, people, uh, the, people, the people got. And he turned to the people and he said, I am nothing. You are nothing. And they were like, and he said, Beethoven is everything. I am nothing. You are nothing. Beethoven is everything. That piece of music was the thing to be exalted, not them. And for you and I, likewise, we're here. We're singing. We're preaching, we're listening, we're living, but in all reality, we're nothing. Christ is everything. That's how we should see it. Third point. Notice the supreme Christ. Now, this is going to be a fun debate on Wednesday night small groups, but in verse 31, some scholars believe that John the Baptist has stopped talking, and this is John the Apostle writing from 31 through 36. Other scholars I read do believe this is John the Baptist continuing to write. So that gives you a little preview for Wednesday night. We might can debate that a little bit on Wednesday night. Regardless of who said it, it's true, right? And it speaks to this very passage in this context, and it points to the supremacy of Christ. We read Colossians 1 earlier in the service, and that passage says that Christ is preeminent in all things, he is preeminent. He is superior. He is supreme. And I'll put these up there for you to see. As we go through this, these verses, they just point to the greatness of Christ. First, in verse 31, he says, He who comes from above is above all. And he speaks there to just the, the deity of Christ. He's not merely a man. He is one who is greater than just man because he is also God. Why must Jesus increase and why must we decrease? Because he is very God. In verse 32 and 33, we see that his message is true. Now let me ask you this. Was John the Baptist's message true? Yes. Was John the Apostle's message true? Yes. But the point of verse 32 and 33 is that Jesus Christ, 
has been with God the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. The Trinity united from all eternity. And so when Christ came, he is speaking the, the truth that's been from all eternity. It's not just like a message from, from even our lips. It is the word of God. He is the Logos, the word of God. Verse 33 says, if you receive his testimony, you set your seal to this, that God is true. Meaning, if you receive Christ, you're pro proclaiming God is true. What he said is true. Letter C, um, this is verse 34. He is sent by God to make God known. It says in verse 34, For he whom God sent speaks or utters the words of God. We know the Father sent the Son. We talked about that in John 3.16. We know God, Christ was God sent and he came to make God known. Next, letter D, notice he is sent with authority and power. The second part of verse 34, look at it. It says, For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Biblically speaking, when you give something by measure, that's a little bit. It's partial. It's a piece. But Christ is given the Spirit without measure, meaning fully, completely, abundantly. And all these things are really saying the same thing, that Christ is superior to every prophet who's ever come, to every priest who's ever lived, and to every king God's ever ordained. Christ is superior. Fully receiving the measure of the Spirit. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son. I'd love to kind of preach on that one phrase one day, to think about the Trinity before Christ even created the world. The Trinity was in perfect union, satisfied, not needing to create us, but just deciding to, you know, to, to exalt his glory. But the Father's love for the Son, we can't really, I don't think, ever understand. There's a book called Communion with God by a man named John Owen. If you like to read things about that, John Owen's Communion with God is a great place to, to go. He's loved by the Father. The second part of verse 35 He's given all things by the Father. God has put all things concerning man's salvation into the hands of Christ. And Christ fulfilled all those things. Each of these phrases, and there's got to be seven or eight of them, that just speak to who Christ is and the supremacy of Christ, they're all meant uh, to kind of back up this idea that He must increase and we must decrease. Why? Truth, 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 truth. All these truths. These are reasons why Christ must increase. And so I would say to those disciples, or to any of us who might be jealous of someone else in this way, be happy when Christ's word goes forth. Be happy when God does work in people. Do y'all like going to uh, sporting events? Some of y'all like going to sporting events? Yeah. Would you like going, let's just say you went to a professional sporting event, but none of the players were better than you at that sport. What would that be like? Not very impressive, right? I can't get my money back. Some of y'all are like, I'm pretty good. How about this? Do you like watching movies? Would you like watching movies where the actors are no better than you? We have that now, reality TV, right? We have some of that. But like a real movie with real actors. I don't watch me up there, right? I want to watch real actors. Or a similar line of thought 
Would you go to a museum and like stare at these beautiful paintings if they could only paint as good as you? Like I'm awful at that, it'd be awful. But we, there's something in us that appreciates superiority and like and, and appreciating it. Like I love watching really great professional athletes do their thing. I'm like, that's incredible the things they can do. Right? Or famous musicians, like they sing so well, like that's so amazing the gift they've been given. I wonder if God made us that way. That he, God put something in us to appreciate something superior. Mainly because the main thing we should appreciate is the superior being, God himself. And that we would find our joy in finding our purpose in seeing him as supreme. If you've never seen Christ as supreme, superior, better than anything else, if you've never treasured him like the guy in the Gospels, remember the guy in the Gospels who found the treasure and he loved it so much he went and sold all that he had, bought the land so that he could have the treasure? If you've never treasured Christ as your supreme being, I would ask this morning, do you really know Christ? Christ is never meant to be an accessory to your life or a side piece in your life. You cannot treat Jesus this way. He's not just a teacher or a preacher or a prophet. He is God, and He is the supreme Christ, and He deserves and demands our all. Someone said Christ is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Is he supreme in your life? If he was supreme in these disciples' lives at this time, I doubt they would have came to John the Baptist with this discussion. Number four, final verse. I'm just calling it the glorious gospel. He that believeth on the Son hath eternal, everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What a simple verse. There are two paths. A path to life, a path to death. There are two responses. Faith, belief, which leads to life, and rejection, which leads to death. And there's one object of faith, the Son of God. And the word believe here, by the way, is a present tense word. It doesn't mean that you believed at one time in the past and now you believe something else. No. You believed and you continue to believe. That's what Christians are. People who believe and continue to believe that Christ is who he said he was and did what he said he did. I don't think I can explain. Let's just do it this way. Can you remember the best day of your life? The best day of your life. When you got married, some of you? Just say yes, guys. Just say yes. When your kids were born? I've had several best days. <laughs> but the best day of your life and how great you might have felt. Isn't it amazing to think that day will, is really nothing compared to what eternity will be like for believers. Pretty amazing. 
And so I don't feel like, unless I go and read some scriptures, I don't feel like I can halfway explain what it's going to be like. The peace, the hope, the joy, the reward, the eternal life that we have in Christ. All I know is this, the suffering that we go through here will pale in comparison with the greatness of the glory of eternity. And that gives us hope to make it through this life. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have, you have even now this life. You're not just waiting for it, by the way. You, you have it even now, and you'll get it in completion later. But what a blessing to know we have eternal life. But I don't want to leave this text and go to chapter 4 without the last phrase of verse 36. But the wrath of God abides on him. Remember when Jesus said to Nicodemus, anyone who does not believe in Christ is condemned already? Same chapter. Now we see the writers say, if you don't believe, you shall not see life and the wrath of God Look, the wrath of God hangs over you. We're all born sinners. Our first father, Adam, was a sinner. We start sinning at an early age, and we're just bent towards sin, and we're broken, and we're children of wrath, enemies of God. And the Bible says that the wrath of God is hanging over us. And we talk, let me, let me give it to you this way. I have four things here, four errors people make regarding this kind of phrase. The first one is that some believe that God is love and nothing else. Some believe that God is only love and nothing else, that, he is, that God is loving, merciful, gracious, and compassionate. Is that true? Yes, and we love thinking about that, and we should. It's, it's hope, it's comfort. God is patient. He's loving. God is love, the Bible says. But we see here in verse 36, his wrath. Not only is God loving, he is just and holy. And the wrath is the holy hatred of God poured out on sin and sinners. And just as God is loves beyond our imagination, that's the same way his holy hatred for sin is. It's complete. Some believe, well, we just better preach that God is love. Well, if we're going to preach John 3.36, we're going to preach that God hates sin and His wrath abides on sinners and God punishes sin. A second error that people have here is uh, some believe that people can be saved without faith. Now, we don't believe that, but there are people who believe that. And... This verse is very clear. Who has everlasting life in verse 36? He that believes. Those whom God predestines, he calls. Those whom God calls, he justifies. But there is no justification until there's faith. We must believe in Christ. A third error that people believe is that Christ died for all, and all will ultimately be justified by his death. That's universalism, right? We know that's not true. Unless you believe the wrath of God abides on you even now. And how about this last one, the fourth one? Some believe preachers should not mention God's wrath or the doctrine of hell or condemnation. 
You ever been to a church like that? Or heard of them? Now, I've also been to churches that stand up and yell at you about hell every Sunday, every sermon. And I don't do that. Y'all know I don't do that. Um, I've been to those churches. It's kind of it's different. But should we talk about the doctrine of hell? Is it in Scripture? Yeah. If we don't talk about it, we're not preaching the full gospel that God has called us to preach because we need people to understand there is a great danger for your eternity if you don't turn to Christ. Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and the stories are told that when he's preaching, it's such a powerful message that people thought they were about, about to fall through the floor and go to hell, and so they begin to grab the post in the church building, scared they were about to fall into hell, preaching this powerful revival sermon about it. I can't, I can't imagine what that was like. But we understand that this preaching of wrath and of hell and condemnation is a warning, right? If we went outside after church and we're all out there just talking, and y'all saw my four-year-old heading toward the road, what would you do? Would you go, hey, the preacher's kid's in the road. <laughs> you know, I think the preacher's kid's going to the road. Let's see what happens. <laughs> no, unless you're an awful person. I hope you would yell, watch out, kid, you know, or, or run to them, right, and bring them back. That's what preaching on hell and wrath and condemnation is, in a sense. We're telling people, you're headed for the road. You're headed for eternal damnation. We want to warn you, don't go that way. And the only answer is to turn to Christ. Turn to the one that God, listen, I told you about the wrath of God, the holy hatred of God for sin. Do you know what God did with that wrath for, for all who will believe? He put that wrath not on us. He laid it on Christ on the cross. The wrath we deserve to experience for all eternity, God took, the Father took, and placed it on His own Son for us. That if we believe, we have eternal life. As we leave this verse, let me remind you, Christ is the bridegroom. He comes from above. He testifies to what He has seen and heard. He was God sent. He has the Spirit without measure. He is loved by the Father. All things are given into His hand. And all who believe in Him will have everlasting life. He is greater than all things. He must increase. Lord, help us decrease. Let's pray.